Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Name. <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. So this podcast is the other side of the coin when it comes to the Texans for Mountain Lions petition. I wanted to get an individual that represented an opposite viewpoint to Ben Masters. This individual actually was recommended by Ben Masters, and his name's Greg Simons. Greg Simons operates wildlife systems and a number of other companies in South Texas and West Texas and operates on private ranches pretty much all over the United States. But Greg actually hosted Deep in the Heart in San Angelo and hosted and moderated a Q&A session with Ben Masters. And so I thought this was the most appropriate individual to have a conversation about and with this petition because Ben recommended him, number one, and two other individuals in the mountain lion community suggested we reach out to Greg. It's a fascinating conversation that really delves into the side of the petition that is really the anti-side of it, right? That's the be-all and end-all of it, the anti-side of it. And I even asked Greg the question, are you for or against the petition? And his answer is simple, I'm against the petition. Enjoy. You know, so one of the things that uh, I quite enjoy with Blood Origins, and sometimes I enjoy it, sometimes uh, you get sort of backed into a corner is that we tend to have been identified as the sort of spear tip when it comes to hunting issues that are really happening now, whether that's in the United States or all over the world. And um, this issue, is it an issue, Greg? Am, am, am I colloquializing it correctly? You know, it's, uh, it's an issue to some. You know, the, uh, the discussion, I think, is... is uh is new enough to the scene to where it still hasn't kind of uh, rippled out across the landscape mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the, mm -hmm. you know, the, the whole landowner community, hunting community, stakeholder communities, mm -hmm. uh, being aware of, of, of some of these discussions uh, 
that are taking place. So I, I don't know if I'd characterize it as a as a broad issue at this point, but, uh, but that ripple effect is, is is certainly gaining gaining legs as we speak. Certainly worthwhile a discussion point that has many tentacles, many opinions, many perspectives, as typical of most things in hunting. Yeah. And this thing that we're talking about is um, the whole uh, discussion around mountain lions in Texas. Uh, the Texans for Mountain Lions Coalition was formed, uh, submitted a petition to the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. And I think the day after the petition was filed, uh, I got blown up. I got blown up by several different people from several different directions. Have you heard about this? Have you thought about this? What do you think about this? And per our typical uh, way about how we do things, we like to take a step back. We like to think. We like to see who are the people that we needed to have discussions with on both sides of the equation, both sides of the perspective. And so we reached out to Ben Masters, and uh, you would have heard Ben Masters on the podcast already. And uh, I reached out to two other individuals um, in the hunting community space, as well as asking Ben Masters, which I thought was a very appropriate question for Ben, who should we talk to that is essentially a standing in a position opposite to yours? And the name that got thrown back at me three times over was Mr. Greg Simons. So, Mr. Greg Simons, uh, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. Yeah, thank you, Robbie. It's... Uh... It's my pleasure, my honor to be able to uh, to participate in this 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 interview today. I didn't know I was uh, voted most likely to succeed in this space <laughs> here, so I don't know. How to, I like that. That's like it's like a American high school, <laughs> yeah. you know, most likely to you know give the correct version. But, uh, yeah. but no, it's uh, it's 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 a topic that certainly is is germane to you know, the professional career that I've been involved with for the last 35 years, working with with private landowners uh, and hunters and, and working in a, in a part of the world that, uh, that mountain lions exist. And so, uh, uh, and I've been, you know, somewhat uh, outspoken regarding some of my advocacy uh, positions and values over the years with different organizations mm -hmm. that I've worked with. So I guess in some ways I'm not surprised mm -hmm. that, uh, that, uh, that I ended up with this, uh, this, this, this privilege to be able to visit with you there today. We go. So. I don't, I don't know if you recall, um, and it's okay if you don't, cause obviously you're meeting a lot of people, but I did get to meet you at Dallas Safari mm -hmm. Club. Um, you were with Shane Mahoney, and we were we were sort of cross paths in the the Vermejo booth with Kyle Jackson. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Shane is um, is is heavy into um, you know continuing to roll out uh, some research and, and some work on on what he calls the Wild Harvest Initiative, which uh, which I'm a big fan of. Uh, so yeah, Shane and I were working the floor that day. Uh, uh, me introducing him to some folks that I felt like uh, could be uh, central to some of his discussions regarding uh, wild harvest. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so let's let's dive in a little bit. Let's give some context to the people that are listening to this. I want some context first and foremost about you and why people believe that you have the knowledge to be able to speak to this topic? And I know the answer to this question, So, but uh, I want you to give sort of a background to who you are, what you do, um, 
and how you sort of play into this hunting community space and understand what's happening in Texas specifically. Sure. Yeah. No, it, um, you know, my, my, uh, academic background is, is in the wildlife field. I graduated in 87 with a wildlife and fishery sciences degree and an emphasis on wildlife ecology. So, uh, so naturally I was, uh, came out of, uh, college, um, with that kind of career path and immediately started a business called wildlife systems. And it's a business that I still co-own and manage today. And, and, uh, and wildlife systems, um, we basically, uh, put together commercial hunting operations on different private lands. We worked here in Texas, uh, New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, Oklahoma, a few other States and several other countries. And, um, and provide some technical assistance uh, with other wildlife-related matters. Uh, co-own a company called Wildlife Consultants, where it's uh, just straight-up technical guidance uh, for landowners, bank trust groups, and others that, uh, that, that are seeking some, uh, some assistance regarding their, their wildlife interest. And then another company that I co-own called uh, Conservation Equity Partners, and we're involved in environmental mitigation, forestry management, uh, uh, along with investing some private capital in some areas that have uh, unique conservation uh, uh, opportunities to create uplift for conservation uh, uh, value. And so, you know, I've spent 35 years just kind of working in this wildlife management, this, 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 this hunting space, um, for the last, since 90, I've uh, been, uh, 1990, I've been working in areas of the state uh, that, uh, that have mule deer and, uh, and have mountain lions. I saw my first mountain lions um, out near Sanderson, Texas in 1992 and uh, saw mother For everyone's edification, where's Sanderson, Sanderson Texas? Sanderson would West be Texas. Uh, what most people would describe as West Texas, but it's not, uh, uh, you know, extreme. El Paso is extreme West Texas and Sanderson okay. is still three and a half hours shy of getting to El Paso, but it's okay. in the Trans-Pecos region, not terribly okay. far from the Big Bend country where Big Bend National Park is, about 100 miles from Big Bend National Park. And, uh, but that's when I saw, uh, had the you know, pleasure of being able to, to have a, a mother cat and, and three young that were probably somewhere in that you know, eight to 10 month of age range, uh, having all four of them within uh, 10 yards of me uh, for about five wow. minutes. And so, uh, you know, that uh, obviously created um, a, a stir and some curiosity regarding mountain lions, being able to, to watch cats that close uh, out in the wild um, for several minutes. Uh, but over the years, I've basically made my, my living uh, in the hunting business, in the wildlife management field, uh, spent an immense amount of time in those areas where you have those sympatric relationships between ungulates that are um, that are economic engines regarding uh, conservation funding, uh, you know, community-based uh, financial support uh, in terms of local economies, and um, and and then having that that kind of that dynamic tension that uh, those economic driving uh, wild ungulates um, 
possess having that dynamic tension and living in a space where there's a few other critters that like to eat them, in particular mountain lions. Do you, yeah. Is your philosophy that you do believe it's sympatric? Uh, well, I believe it's sympatric in the um, in the context that they share the same space. Without okay. that. Let me ask this then. Maybe this is a and we tend to throw out some very pokey questions, so I apologize for being pokey at That's times. Um, would you be? Would it be a fair statement that you are in favor of mountain lions being on the landscape? You don't want to see them eradicated. No, I, you know, I, I don't want to see any living creature that we share this this earth with uh, eradicated from the the landscape of uh, of, of of this world. Uh, no, yeah, it's uh, I have a great love for. For mountain lions, and uh, but uh, but I think I have a, a pretty good understanding of what uh, you know some of those predator prey relationships uh, look like. Uh, have a pretty good understanding of what some of these wildlife financial economies mean to uh, supporting uh, revenue streams for private landowners as well as conservation funding. And uh, and to me, it's uh, it, it, it's all interwoven. It's all braided. In, in some fashion. So uh, for me, trying to understand uh, balance uh, while also working within those, uh, when we start talking about, you know, pointy topics, pointy questions, pointy uh, issues, uh, we can't separate those pointy items outside of the, the unique cultures that exist geographically. Sure. Uh, around sure. this country and around this globe and, and each state's a little different and even within certain states those wildlife cultures those hunting cultures can be quite quite different mm -hmm. and uh and and it's not my role it's not your role uh but it's simply the way it is when it comes to wild felines uh it tends to evoke or or create a, a little different emotional stir than some of, of the other predators uh such as let's just say coyotes so. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's certainly an anthropomorphic or anthropomorphism of larger, larger predators, you know, lions, leopards in Africa, uh, mountain lions, bears in America, wolves in America tend to have these uh, so, uh, definitely an anthropomorphizing above any other predator that you notice, as you mentioned, possum, uh, you don't mention possums, but coyotes, possums, raccoons. Mm -hmm don't tend to get the love as much as those big apex predators yeah. do. No, it's a, it's a very, and that's a, it's a subject into itself. We could spend the rest of the day talking about uh, those anthropomorphic values, but uh, wild felines create a different stir uh, for sure than, you know, some, uh, some of the other creatures out there. And, and even just some of the, you know, the, the larger mammals in general, big face, big eyes, eyelashes, uh, facial features that in some ways resemble humans as opposed to a mouse. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. so in, in people, different people relate to those features in different ways. And it creates an emotional stir within mm -hmm. that, uh, that uh, can uh, create a, a complex uh, relationship that our society has with, with our natural world for sure. Greg, uh, just a little bit more context. You've done a lot of work in South Texas. You've done a lot of work in the Trans-Pecos West Texas area with with landowners and true statement. Yeah, we uh, just in West Texas alone, uh, we're working with 
about a half million acres out there that is scattered out over mm, about 10 or 12 different properties in South Texas. Uh, we work with another couple of hundred thousand acres scattered out over about 10 different properties. So altogether about a million acres that we work with in Texas and, and, uh, and about half of that is, is in mountain lion country. So. Okay. Of, you know, over the years, you've obviously been exposed as, as you mentioned already, and, and a, you know, piece of, of seeing mountain lions in West Texas and Transpecos area. Have you, and obviously you interact with landowners that are on the ground all the time in these properties. Can you give us a sense of whether over time, I don't know whether this is five years or 10 years, you can, you can put the time frame to it. Are you seeing more mountain lions on the landscape? Are you seeing about the same mountain lions on the landscape? Are you seeing a trend downwards of mountain lions on the landscape? You may have science to back this up. Or it may just purely be anecdotal based on conversations you've been having with landowners. Yeah, it's purely anecdotal and, uh, and beyond a shadow of a doubt, sightings and, um, and, and, and second and third hand reports that have been you know, confirmed uh, through either somebody shooting a cat or having pictures of it on a camera. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, uh, that anecdotal data, that information that exists, uh, is more it's more common that people are seeing them people are shooting them uh, people are you know crossing paths with them uh, over the last 10 to 15 years than they were 30 to 40 years ago and uh, one might say well you know with the advent of, of social media we're just going to hear about that kind of right. stuff more right. readily and indeed we will but 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 you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, a deer hunter shoots a mountain lion. That's like the Holy Grail. They're going to tell all their friends about it. That, that, that word would spread very quickly back then, even mm -hmm. though the, the rate of spread was a little slower. But you would sure. hear about yeah. those things if you were in the hunting world. And um, sightings, incidental take of mountain lions just were not nearly as common 30 or 40 years ago as they are today. And a lot of those areas where the mountain lions existed back then and where they continue to exist today, with a few exceptions, um, don't have any more activity on them today than they did back then. Matter of fact, there's many areas where back then some of these landowners were prone to put more hunters onto that country than they do today. And uh, uh, today, uh, with the emphasis being placed on, you know, mule deer management uh, and, and big deer management, uh, you know, uh, along that stretch that runs from, let's just say, uh, uh, Laredo up to Del Rio. And a lot of those landowners are not having, you know, as many paid hunters coming onto their property as they did back then. So. I would uh, I would make an argument that uh, that number of people in the field in those areas where mountain lions exist today, those number of man days, uh, human days in the field is probably less today than it was thirty or forty years ago. Really, I would have said the opposite. I would have said that you know because of these ranches and all the animals that are on it, and you know people like you doing wildlife management. 
that they would be selling more yeah, hunts and yeah. there would be more people taking out. I can see why you would think that way, but what you've got to realize, uh, 30 or 40 years ago, there was not as much emphasis being placed on quality deer management and uh, and reducing harvest. And uh, and the, the, the value of those animals back then, the value of hunting was often more tied to you know, how many hunters can I put on my place as opposed to mm. what's the maximum amount that I can charge per hunter and have fewer hunters that fit within the, you know, the management goals that I have for this property. You have that relationship that's taken place. It's reduced number of hunters in the field. Plus you have a lot of big ranches that have been purchased in that stretch along the Rio Grande going from South Texas up into the area where the Rio Grande bends over, and then you start heading into West Texas, into the Trans-Pecos. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of very large ranches that have been purchased by individuals that purchased them for their own recreational pleasure, where they don't need to lease them out to other people. And in that case, there are fewer hunters, generally speaking, that are coming onto those properties than what there would have been some time prior gotcha. to when they... they, they gotcha. It's a much more exclusive... Uh, private kind of uh, mm. situation on those type of properties. So even though it sounds a little counterintuitive, I would make the argument that there's less man days in that mountain lion country today in the field than what there was uh, probably 30 years ago, maybe even as recent. And to, round, and to round out that point, to round out that point, you, you, you said earlier, just to confirm, with more mountain lion sightings, incidental, uh, with more mountain lions being taken, more mountain lions being seen on trail cameras with less people. Right. Fair statement? That, 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 that is a very fair statement. That's one of the points that, that I was trying to make. Mm-hmm. So the petition by uh, Texans for Mountain Lions, um, as their first sort of bullet point in their petition, it, they, they're asking for a statewide survey to really identify the population structure, the population survey, the population status rather, not survey. It sounds like I, I would tend to agree with that's something that's needed. You, you, you almost just said we don't have the science, right? I don't, you know, based on looking through their petition, they don't have the science either. They're basing on a 2012 survey census. I don't know the extent of that survey census in 2012, but at least it's, it's 10 years old at this stage. That that's probably a good thing, right? It would be a good way to sort of validate what you're saying. Uh, of course, yeah. It's uh, I think with um, with any animals that we're looking at trying to uh, you know manage more objectively and uh, and understand you know the ecology of those animals, uh, r- data, good data, and not all data is good, uh, but good data. Is is that's that's the that's the baseline that is established in terms of okay where do we go from here without that baseline. it's what you use on a daily basis right you use you use science and population dynamics to provide information and provide recommendations to your landowners we we don't use a lot of science we we use a lot of data. Um, 
data. That's, I'm sorry, I didn't that's mean I didn't right. mean the analytical it's, it's, component it's of it, but the data. science, you know, it, it's it's used very loosely. The the term when there's really, mm-hmm. I think, a little bit of a misunderstanding of what that really what that really means. And there's uh, getting off on a little bit of bunny trail, but there's different sciences out there. The one that we tend to to cling to the first is science associated with the the biology of the animal, but when we start talking about science and we're going to use science as a basis for managing um, these animals, we need to be looking at other uh, disciplines of science to the ecology, you know, how they interact with other animals that they're sharing the landscape with, what that relationship looks like. And when we make decisions to manage this animal based on the science of that animal, what does that consequence look like to the other animals that are part of that whole ecological system. Uh, so ecology is certainly a science that we often overlook, uh, even though we do place emphasis on ecology, social science, you know, what's, what kind mm-hmm. of turmoil, what kind of chaos is some of this going to create uh, when we start pondering regulation uh, changes? Social science should be considered because of uh, initially, the social science affects political science, which is part of the, the rulemaking and policymaking process. You know, the financial economies, that's science that goes into estimating, you know, what the financial economies look like. So we need to be looking at science based on, um, you know, some of, the, some of the financial economies that are, that are tied to those decisions that may create a ripple effect that affect conservation funding that affect, you know, local economies on the you know, local basis that might affect the revenue going into private landowners' pockets that, you know, allow mm-hmm. them to reinvest money back into the boots on the ground management of those properties. So that, yeah, science should be used. And I know I've got, I went off on a little bit of a bunny trail there. That's okay. But, uh, but yes, we need data, whether it's anecdotal, whether it's gathered through cameras you know, aerially, we need data. We need uh, baseline information as a starting point on where where do we go from here. And when it comes to mountain lions, I'll agree we're lacking um, the the data that that we would like to have compared to data that we have for let's just say white-tailed deer or even mule deer or right. any other animals for that right. matter. So there's a gap, there's a deficiency there that. Uh, that we need to explore on how can we um, how can we bridge that gap and collect more data to understand mm-hmm. the distribution, mm-hmm. the ecology, and some of the other things that I just pointed out regarding you know mountain lions. But as ecologists and scientists, though, Greg, we shouldn't be relying on anecdotal evidence to form the basis of the data collection effort. We should be looking for an objective survey methodology that can be put in place over a certain landscape area, then pop, then using some extrapolation in terms of population models to potentially say, this is what we believe the, the, the population size is of mountain lions, plus or minus some sort of confidence interval around that estimate. Why not? Why should we not be using anecdotal uh, data? Well, it doesn't fit with the scientific methodology in that it doesn't sit According with to the... According to you? According to the scientific process. There there you go. We start wading back into uh, some very interpretive, biased um, areas there regarding 
what data should be considered valid. Um, when you have data that's staring you in the face, that's not collected under the traditional means that most scientists and academics mm -hmm. would say, mm -hmm. that's the, that's the process. That's the methodology that we consider mm -hmm. to be acceptable in our world. But yet if you're deficient on data in general, and you're trying to figure out how to paint a picture, if you've got anecdotal evidence that, um, that, that is available to you, why would you not look at that? And is it because oh, I think you can look at that data immediately. You could look at that data right away. Yeah. But I think the scientific process is put in place to allow for repeatability so that you could know and understand trends in a population over time. And if you if that's what you're interested in, which I think you would be right, you would want to get this first data point in time with some sort of confidence interval around it. And maybe the methodology today, to your point, is using anecdotal evidence of trail cameras in XYZ yeah. areas. Yeah. But you'd need to repeat that to be able to definitively track a trend over time. Yeah, and, and, and I, I see your point, and it's a good one. It's a, it's a valid point. Uh, you know, it, it, some of this anecdotal uh, data that we're talking about kind of circles back, and some of this comes, uh, boils down to semantics, but, you know, citizen science is one of the new, you know, things we often uh, hear people talking about these days. And, 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 and some of this citizen science data is, is anecdotal. And uh, well, some of the citizen science data in the bird community is the best data that they have. What is it called? eBird, right? Isn't eBird the citizen science driven piece mm -hmm. of business for Audubon? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, 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 and that that data may not been have been collected using the methodologies that meet the standards um, that are in place for whatever, you know, for whatever uh, journal, uh, whether it be the Journal of Wildlife Management or whatever journal it might be that apply to, to avian species, uh, it, it may be a, a different methodology, but it may be some of the best information that we have available to us out there that helps paint the picture. And that's really what we're mm -hmm. trying to do is, is right. paint a picture so we can best understand what's on the canvas. And, uh, mm -hmm. and with most species, even those that are, um, that have been researched to the infinite degree, they're still blank spaces on the canvas. Of course. They will always of be, course. but that's part of the mystery of magic course. that makes things uh, interesting and, and valuable about wild things is. Well, it's, it's job security for scientists too. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> um, Greg, from a standpoint of this petition, you obviously have read it You've obviously engaged Ben Masters. I don't know if you've engaged Ben Masters specifically about this petition, but I know that you and Ben had a discussion in San Angelo about Deep in the Heart, which has essentially started, his film started this whole um, sort of running down this track. Um, maybe just ask you a very blunt question. Are you for or against the petition? I'm against the petition. Yes, is there anything specifically about the petition that makes you be against it? Because you just agreed with step number one in the petition, which is, yes, we need more data. Yes, we, a population survey is something yeah. that uh, is, is something that's needed. Yeah. You know, there's, there's elements of the petition um, that I think there's some, some rationale and some reasonableness to it. 
but when you bundle things together, they come as a package. And uh, yeah, right. in this Correct. case, it, it's, it's a package of six items. So now mm-hmm. I'm not going to support the petition with the way it stands. Another thing that has unfortunately uh, complicated the whole matter um, is, is, the, is the movie is interwoven with this petition. And uh, it's, it, 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 it's part of the same um, strategy. It's part of the same um, initiative. And in some ways, it's, it's, you know, it's brilliant-minded in terms of, um, you know, uh, the strategy, strategy that's being used because um, if you're wanting to be effective with your efforts, if you don't have the data, then let's play off people's emotions. And that's what they're doing by interjecting the movie into this whole space that's occupied by the petition, which also happens to be the same strategy that uh, anti-hunters use and other animal rightists. When they don't have the data to help support and advance their agenda, they're going to generally play off of people's emotions. So there's some similar mm-hmm. strategies. It can be highly effective. It is highly effective. And, uh, mm-hmm. so I can't say I really fault them for that. And, uh, but they're intertwined. The movie, I, I, th- I think there's a better chance that the petition could have had legs underneath it if the movie had not been tied to it. And because, um, you know, there's a portion of the, of the movie that has very much an anti-trapping sentiment to it. And, uh, and so it begs the question, is this really all about mountain lions or is it equally about trapping? And, uh, mm. and to me, you've braided the two together. You can't separate them at this point. And it probably compromised uh, the ability for the petition to have some clean legs underneath it without other special interests going, wait, time out. Mm, uh, let's, let's take a, uh, a, you know, a more clear look at this. And, um, but uh, so uh, to me, they're both intertwined and, uh, and uh, again, very strategic. And, uh, but it, it did, uh, I think, complicate, confound um, uh, the, the, the whole matter with the, the petition. Are there any other elements of the petition that if it wasn't packaged together that you would be in favor of? You know, I, I, you know, it, I can I can easily get behind the idea of us needing um, additional data and, and good research on on mountain lines. I can easily get. Would you would you would you add that the data? Sorry to interrupt you, Greg. I know I asked you a question and then I completely interrupted you right away. Would you include in that data the sort of mandatory harvesting reporting that they have in point number two? Yeah, I would. I would not support that. It creates chaos. It 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 it, it creates uh, a political stir that clouds the rest of the process, and uh, we don't need to have mandatory reporting to to still be able to to have um, a plan, a process in place. It's a good one for collecting some some needed data. Uh, you start making people do things instead of incentivizing people to do things, you mm-hmm. get a different outcome. And mm-hmm. uh, 
So mm -hmm. I would much rather see. Um, Is there any mandatory reporting of wildlife harvest in Texas? Uh, there are. Mm -hmm. Okay. You, I, you were about to say you would rather see? I would rather see incentives based, uh, you know, a, a, an incentive based uh, program that encourages mountain lion harvest reporting as opposed to making it, it mandatory. You make it mandatory, you're going to be more inclined for people to shoot, shovel, and shut up, and you're not going to get your data. Mm -hmm. If you mm -hmm. incentivize it by, let's just say, everybody that reports their mountain lion harvest, uh, their name goes into a lottery to have a lifetime hunting license drawn for them. That's just one quick example of how you might incentivize the collecting of that data as opposed to uh, using a, a, a hammer. You, you know, you, using a hammer versus using a carrot, it's just it's two different strategies and, and you should only come out with two different outcomes. So, Yeah, no, that's a very fair statement. And I think that that model it's a it's a model pervasive to all sorts of all parts of society right either incentivize someone to do it and if you don't get the participation you're looking for then unfortunately the stick comes out right exactly agreed <laughs> uh what about the uh the working group component it seems like and and, and before i i let I do not interrupt you again right. as you get ready no, to answer. Says it all the time. <laughs> um, at the time of recording of this podcast, we have heard from Texas Parks and Wildlife that they have denied the conservation group's request for the petition, uh, but they are interested in forming a working group to consider the issue further. Yep. No, that's that would be the. The other feature of the um, of the petition that I could get behind, and uh, it needs to be balanced. Otherwise, there's going to be chaos and, and that whole emotional start. So you need both sides of the argument represented in that work. Absolutely. Uh, it, it, it's just regardless of what issues at hand, if you don't have some degree of balance, you have gridlock, and then um, you know decisions get made outside of. Uh, you know, collective bright minds that may not make sense altogether. And so, yeah, it, it only makes sense to have a balanced working group that, um, that can collectively provide input on what data is lacking, uh, what, you know, what methodologies do we try to rely on the most to collect that data, what anecdotal, uh, uh, examples or anecdotal uh, features that are already out there do we perhaps incorporate into the mix to help paint the picture and uh, so yeah it's um, I, I, I think that that's uh, I suspect that's where we're headed and I suspect mm -hmm. that's a good path for us to be headed down at this point mm -hmm. if they asked you to be a part of the working group Greg would you would you say yes um at this point, I'd say I wouldn't say no. Uh, I would want to know what the, you know, what the commitment looked like. And, what's the charge, yeah, right? Yeah. What What is the what's, what's the charge? What's the forming function? Uh, and uh, so, uh, yeah, it, it's. I would certainly, you know, look at that. And but I would want to have uh, just more information to be able to to uh, recognize whether or not it's I, I'm a good fit for for that working group and whether or not it's a good fit for me. So 
Do you think that the petition came down to... I know you, you have strong feelings of the film and how it inter, interweaves with this petition and uh, all cards on the table. I've yet to see the film and I purposely have not watched it because I knew I was interviewing Ben tomorrow and I'm watching the film tonight. And I knew I had you on the podcast today. Yeah, and, he, and, he, and he asked me, he said, please watch the film before you interview <laughs> Yeah, now do yourself a favor and watch it. Uh, everybody should see it. It's... Uh... It's it's a uh, it's an incredible uh, documentary, uh, great work. Um, it um, you know uh, just uh, as I you know alluded to to Ben, I don't think you you needed to dial the the anti-trapping sentiment that far. You could have made a point without dialing it that far, and uh, and probably had a product that uh, that that anybody in their right mind would not have had any kind of heartburn uh, regarding the, mm -hmm. the product, but the dial was turned too far. Um, irrespective of that, it's a, uh, it's an amazing uh, documentary. Ben does uh, really good work. Uh, he's proven his, uh, his ability and his capacity to, uh, to put out some, uh, some, some great quality uh, products. And, uh, and this is certainly not an exception to that. And just so again to reaffirm the relationship here, you was it is it true that you actually hosted Ben's film at the showing of Ben's film in San Angelo? Yes, yeah. Ben uh, had reached out to me, um, I don't know, three or four weeks prior to when it was screened here in San Angelo, and, and asked if I would consider moderating the Q and A here in the screening. And uh, and I told him, I said, you know, uh, I'm honored that you would. Uh, reach out to me uh, and provide that, that request. I said, but you know, I can only do it uh, only if you're comfortable with me asking you a few pointy questions. And, and he knew what those questions would likely be. And, uh, and he, you know, he said, yeah, I like the pointy questions. Uh, let's, uh, <laughs> let's get it on. So, so we did, and it was, it was good. And, uh, but, uh, had good, uh, interaction with the audience and, um, and it, and it was it was obvious that the uh, that the audience was very invested in the film as the film moved forward, and uh, there was a lot of lot of emotional um, uh, uh, you know stir that uh, that was created just through you know some of the some of the uh, imagery, the uh, the messaging. Uh, the uh, the music that was overlaid, you know, it was it was it was just uh, it's great, you know, it's a great movie that's very you know very very motivating, very stimulating. Mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. I just wish the one scene could have been dialed back somewhat. Mm -hmm. Well, I've been I've been as I, as Ben said to me, watch the film, and a lot of people have talked about that scene. Um, so I'm look forward to watching it tonight. And look, that I'm, we're in the cinematography business too, right? We're in the messaging business too from a Blood Origins perspective. So we understand the use of emotive imagery with overlaid with some very dramatic music to sort of create this response that you're looking for. And we do it for hunters, right? We want to create this, this response that hunters aren't this cold-blooded you know, blood killer that we're perceived to be. Yeah, I mean, uh, when it comes down to... You know, tools, technologies, and techniques. You're you're foolish if you you know in today's world if you don't look at how that assembly of those 
uh, items that are available to you to, to be able to help advance your work. And uh, mm-hmm. tools, tech, top technologies and techniques, or they're just, you know, they're, they're central to how people try to advance their work these days. And, and so he, he did a great yeah. job with, with, with that part of it. And, uh, Greg, sort of a final question here. Um, what do you, what do you, in terms of your opinion, what is the future of mountain lions in Texas? And let me maybe couch it in two different ways. Number one, if nothing happens, if nothing comes from this petition, what's the future of mountain lions in Texas? And maybe the answer is the same, but what's the future of mountain lions in Texas with some of the things from the petition being put in place? You know, based on the current trajectory, um, it would be one that would be uh, a positive uh, outlook. But if we're if we're really truly interested in uh, you know a management uh, philosophy that uh, that is really good for for mountain lions, we need to be looking at uh, the prey base and uh, and how do we how do we protect that prey base and um, you know, and, and that's where some of the delicate balance comes in and what motivates landowners to protect that prey base are either the financial economies tied to hunting in that part of the world or the uh, incentives that are tied to owning land where those same charismatic big game animals exist. And uh, there are many of those landowners, again, that own those properties that purchase those properties because they're very enamored with having a piece of land that they can try to manage and grow, you know, big mule deer or big horn sheep or pronghorn antelope, perhaps elk. And, um, you take, uh, you take those ungulates out of the picture. It disincentivizes those landowners to, you know, own those lands. It certainly disincentivizes them to reinvest into those lands, whether it be water improvements or, you know, additional fencing for more uh, progressive grazing practices or predator control. And uh, so the focus, uh, if we want to maintain a good trajectory for mountain lions, our focus should be what can we do to protect that prey base for those mountain lions? That's where the emphasis should be placed. Along the way, we can collect good data and, uh, and be able to better understand the distribution, the ecology uh, of mountain lions. Um, uh, you, you start having what I think is a bit more of a winning combination there. And, uh, but, uh, but right now, uh, there's no doubt in my mind, uh, in my mind, that we have more mountain lions today than we did um, 30 years ago when this blew up. And uh, same kind of debate. And, uh, and it, you know, it pretty much culminated with what's now referred to as the mountain lion Roundtable in, in Del Rio, that was, I think, April of 92. And, uh, and it kind of fizzled and went away. There's no mm-hmm. doubt in my mind, we have more mountain lions in Texas today than we had then. There was concern over the future of mountain lions then because that's what precipitated the whole debate, kind of like today. Mm-hmm. And, but, uh, but nonetheless, no reg changes were made at that point in time and mountain lions uh, have continued on with a with a good trajectory since then and uh but a lot of emphasis has been placed on building prey base not to benefit the lions their lions is an ancillary beneficiary of that 
but right. to benefit you know our own personal uh, uh, you know recreation that's tied to uh, and financial economies that are tied to those those that, that prey base. Greg, do you think there's more people trapping mountain lions today or hunting mountain lions today in 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 West Texas, South Texas than there were in 2012 or say to that conference in 1992? Yeah, there's 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 in most of that country there's less trapping today than there was, you know, back then I would say. And there's some little micro areas, but any any time you had sheep and goat country, um Domestic sheep domestic and, goat, sheep and right? goats, uh, and most mm-hmm. of the most of the trap sets back then were for coyotes and bobcats because that was the main predatory animal, you know, on sheep and goats. And then when the uh, wool and mohair incentive went away, and um, the, the 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 policy was passed in '93, it was incorporated in '94. When that when the sheep and goat wool hair mohair uh, wool and mohair incentive went away federally during that period. We were also in a bit of a drought uh, during that period in the western half of the state. Most of the sheep and goat ranching went away in that part of the state. So having, you know, every ranch hand and uh, and, 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 and everybody that was, you know, helping to take care of those sheep and goats on those properties being a you know, uh, a trapper, a lot of that went away. But again, most of the trapping back then were trap sets and traps that were being used for, for coyotes and bobcats as opposed to, to mountain lions. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I think you, you said it well in that there is certainly a number of tentacles that are intricate, intricately tied to the sustainability and growth of mountain lion population in Texas, certainly a prey base, certainly the social science that has to weigh in both the landowner's desire to generate economics on his property, whether that's domestic agriculture or wild agriculture, if you want to dare I say wild agriculture in terms of growing wildlife. Um, but there's also the other social side of it, which is the Ben Master side of the equation, which is you know, there are people out there just like the Grizzly Bear Band in British Columbia that feel like mountain lions shouldn't be, you know, trapped or shouldn't be hunted or whatnot because, you know, what's the point really? Yeah, some, some of that you start creeping into like the 36-hour part of that um, petition. You start creeping into some just some, some value systems, uh, you know, whether it be uh, – protectionism or animal rights or animal welfare and uh and, and 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 to me it's it's really not an animal welfare issue on, on on much of this discussion regarding the petition because if it was strictly animal welfare we would also be looking at the idea well do coyotes feel pain when they're in a trap um what about feral hogs when they're in a live trap and they're allowed to sit there for months and die and decompose do they not feel pain when they're in there? So if, if, if it's strictly about welfare and how animals feel pain, then we need to be looking at uh, those other animals as, as well. So it's more of an animal prote- protectionism type of value set that, that, that mm-hmm. drives some of these discussions when we start talking about, um, you know, the idea of, 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 of pain and suffering, uh, 
But, um, and that's again, going down a bunny trail, but it does tie into the petition when we start talking about like the 36 hour mm-hmm. uh, part mm-hmm. of that. Uh, but we live in a world of pain. It, uh, it's just, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's undeniable. It's, uh, you know, mother nature is based on, uh, you know, uh, pain and, uh, and sometimes mm-hmm. we, we intentionally inflict pain on ourselves, whether it be cross training or whether it be, uh, <laughs> on the rugby field or football field, or whether it be going out and getting sunburned and having to suffer the consequences. We live in a world of pain. So when we start trying to be the referee on what pain is acceptable and what is not, we start getting on that proverbial slippery slope. And, uh, and then it just ends up turning into a very uh, complex discussion. Mm -hmm. Greg, where do you want this to end? Where would you like, if you had your druthers and you were in charge here, Greg, where do you want this to, to end up? Yeah, it, uh, I, I would, I would hope that um, the working group uh, that is formed is one that's uh, of good balance and that, uh, that it has uh, uh, some vision and some permanence to it because, you know, it's sometimes these, these working groups or committees, uh, whatever you want to call them are formed. And after a year or two, it, you know, it kind of loses its, its momentum and, and the, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, people get busy and, and it just kind of goes away. But uh, but I would hope that uh, the working group will have some balance, some vision, and that uh, that it's something that stays in place for a long enough period of time to, to help uh, make a difference and being able to, to establish uh, where some of those gaps are regarding research and data and how we bridge that gap. I hope that's one of the things that will come out of this. Uh, I hope another thing that will perhaps come out is, is recognizing uh, some of these other convolutions here, you know, such as one we just discussed a while ago, the need to, to ensure that those lines uh, have a good prey base to be able to, to make a living off of. What does that look like to ensure mm-hmm. that that, pred- that, that prey point. base remains in place? Uh, what does that yeah, look like? Great point. And uh, that, that would be one of the things that, uh, that I would hope would come out of this. And then to, um, you know, just from a, I don't know, a broad picture standpoint, I would hope that, um, that through these discussions, um, whether it's an epiphany or, or not, that people will, will come to the realization that, listen, we need to sit down and, uh, and work together on some of these divisive issues. You know, reconciliation is really the, uh, the only way we, we truly advance uh, the agenda here for, for both parties to end up uh, having some degree of satisfaction out of this, but ultimately for the resource to also benefit. So, um, you know, that may be uh, the thing that I'd like to see uh, most is uh, some of these stakeholder groups that overlap a little bit, but are incongruent in some of their other areas of values can reconcile um, their, um, their perspectives and try to identify some, you know, just some of those common areas of how do we work together to collectively advance our needs here that benefit the resource from a sustainable standpoint. That's probably what I'd like to see the most out of this. Well said. Well said, Greg Simons. Well, I appreciate you, um, you finding time, and I know you're a very, very busy man, uh, but finding time to have a chat with us and um, 
discuss this very delicate subject that is on the forefront of a lot of people's brains and minds. No, my pleasure. Um, Absolutely. So thank you. Thank you, my man. Yes, thank you. Enjoy the movie tonight. Yes, sir. Okay, great. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.